Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Neil and Jordan podcast, podcast where two comedians talk like experts on subjects they are not experts on. I hope you're doing well. Uh, we have questions and topics uh, that you can send in to us. Um, dependent on your level of subscriber, uh, just go to neilcohacker.com slash podcasts to subscribe and all the money from subscriptions goes straight to charity. We'll be answering a really cool question later on in this podcast where someone's actually sent in a website that they've uh, built and we've had a quick look at it. It's very interesting. Jordan, how are you doing? Great. Great. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm feeling really good actually. Um, yeah, good energy. Just had a banana. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> yeah. Does that Nature's put you energy, in a different right? mood? That's interesting because I remember re- there was – those ads years ago that was like, nothing's a better energy booster than nature's own banana. Well, having uh, just eaten one, I can attest to that. I uh, right. feel a bit of a pep. I'm, I'm banana and an and a, um, English breakfast tea. So very, uh, very healthy right now. But I uh, don't know how long that will last once lo- lockdown is over. What, the pep? No, the health. The health, of course. Mm. A lot more temptation. Do you reckon that you can fight it? I honestly think that this has permanently changed. I remember in that brief little three seconds that we were allowed out of New South Wales, I went down, did half a show, then the borders closed again, so I had to fuck off. And, like, in that time, I remember talking to some guy that was, you know that suburb in Melbourne where it's like, are you guys Cockneys or are you from Australia, I can't tell. There's a certain Melbourneian accent from a working class area that's kind of like, yeah, from Melbourne, isn't it? But they, he was saying that like, oh, Melbourne's not a shame, mate. It's not a shame. And I was looking around in that brief period and I can confirm that it is not the same, man. It's permanently a ghost town. And you would think that as soon as it opened up, everybody would be out on the streets again. But I think it's just like that Simpsons joke of I'm cold in there and wolves after me. Like they just go back into their house because your habits have changed. It's sad. It's um, a lot of small businesses have closed down, especially Melbourne from what I've heard. Um, I think a lot of people have started working as a sole trader over the last year and a half. I was looking at some articles about this. So Australian billionaires increased their net worth by 50% in just 2020. More than the American billionaires. That's so much That's money. crazy. Yeah, I know. How much more money do these guys need? I mean, their philanthropy increased by 30%, but that still doesn't match the uh, increase. No. So a 20% increase on billions of dollars is still a lot of money. Mm. No, 50%. They increase their yeah, net but worth like if you're by 50% taking out... on average. Oh, so it's not their net worth that they're donating 30% more. They're just donating 30% more of charity that they were giving out beforehand. Uh, that'd be yeah, like there's a, there's a Yeah, I don't know how much they... Because you know with these philanthropic um, sources, a lot of it is just a tax ruse. Uh, and, you know, they'll be funding the arts and the opera. So it's just going from the 0.1% to the 1%. It's not exactly trickling yeah. down too far. Um, having yeah, said that, I'm pretty sure Gina Reinhardt. Yeah. 
I think Gina Reinhardt um, helps fund a few of the Olympians. So uh, some of the swimmers, we did really well in the swimming. And uh, I think they can't actually be full-time swimmers without her support. So I guess some credit where credit's due. Uh, but look, um, I don't know if that's um she got us the fucking to, uh... gold. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> why are all our billionaires fat? Gina, Clive... Who's that? There's a few of them. I was looking at a few of their photos. They're all fat cunts. They all are fat cunts, aren't they? Because that's the whole thing. Man, if you had no challenge in life, as in you couldn't get challenged, you have so, you, you have so much ins- money that you are insulated from any challenge except death, what do you do to fill your time in between now and death? Any problem that yeah, you have, what? you chuck money at. Anything. They can't they can't afford a nutritionist. And they're not just fat, they're obese. Like Gina and Clive. I think Gina's lost a bit of weight, but Clive. Buddy. Clive, I know you got yeah. a bit upset when Jordan over here called you fatty McFuckhead, but look, mate, you gotta Facts lose some facts. pounds. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it's the straight truth, truth from Neil. Yeah, <laughs> you can't. There's no defamation, man. Like, sorry, dude. You, I love that. I love that. Like, most dummy. of my arguments in any defamation case ever is just like, but you are fat. Look at you. You fucking fat shit. That gets me out of half of my stuff. You are fat. <laughs> <laughs> So many fat jokes. Yeah, you really... And you know what? I don't even shy away from it. I really do think that that is a core principle of good humor, saying that people are fat. I don't think it'll ever get old. Yeah, mate, you really <laughs> I don't know go why. hard. It just works. <laughs> With the fat jokes, don't you? you get... <laughs> I'm just a fan. I'm a fan. You are uh causing the next generation to develop anorexia your fa- in your fans. <laughs> yeah. During Jordan's well, live shows, the, uh, the toilets are clogged with people vomiting. Ah, in an RSL. That's such a sad <laughs> thought. No, but, um, speaking of which, we, uh, we were going to talk about um, hedonism, but particularly... Uh, hedonism in the um upper echelons of society uh so just before the podcast actually we were talking a little bit about how a few of the internet comedians have lived a sort of semi rock star life you know wouldn't compare to the um big bands of the 70s and 80s not even close in fact a lot of australian celebrities i always say this they try and live the rock star life without the rock star income they try mm. and live the american rock star life but with mm. the income of an e-list american celebrity and mm. eventually you go broke. Um, but um, I know quite a few celebrities in Australia that uh, are still trying to live that life. And, you know, they're basically no different to the uh, crackhead outside of Centrelink because they're in a lot of debt, um, but um, they still need to fuel the drug habit. And it's sad, really. It's very sad. But um, what is it, Jordan? What is it about power and hedonism? Why, you know, so many politicians as well just um, found with all these scandals. Now, do you think there's actually a disproportionate amount of, of scandals, whether they're sex scandals or just, you know, drugs or whatever it may be in, in politics? Or do you think 
because the media the media holds a microscope to um, these people, it just kind of showcases their uh, unscrupulous conduct a bit more. Whereas in other industries, there'd be just as much um, cheating and um, partying and, and and drinking. Or do you think there's something something um, uh, significant about politics that attracts that kind of person? Look, it's definitely what you said. And last time we said this, we got in trouble, but it's still true. It's that every time you ever need to assassinate the character of a politician, what's the best way to do it? Sex scandal. You get that putting in the, in, in, uh, circulating in, in the press, whether it's true or not, it'll haunt you for the rest of your career. It's something that could always be brought out as an attack point. There's definitely that aspect to it. That's not to say that there wouldn't be a disproportionate amount of sociopaths in politics because you just have to be to get into that position. I would say, though, I honestly think that there would be more, definitely more drug, maybe, look, from what I've heard, there's more drug use than is talked about in Canberra, and that's because everybody has something on everyone there. That's the same thing that happens in all of these power circles. Like, remember when we were talking about... Mm. Uh, Epstein and we said that the way that they mm. got them in is to give them a girl that kind of looked like she was in her 20s maybe or like her late teens but then they found out they give her the birth certificate and then she's younger and then you're in it there's no way out of it from there they have that on you for the rest of your career that definitely happens in politics on a smaller scale in federal levels that everybody has dirt units looking on everybody else. And on top of that, they are human beings. A lot of them have drug problems or that kind of stuff. That Those mm. exist as well. So they have all of that information on each other. And so there's always that mutually assured destruction thing that you look, this is the whole thing. Mm. I, I don't really get involved in it. I don't really get off on the whole, well, this politician does coke. When I hear it, I'm kind of interested in it for a second, but then I just think, oh, well, who cares if they're a cokehead or not? Are they doing the job? That's what I really care about. But um, uh, well, I just assume they all are. <laughs> just mm. anywhere where there's money and power, I just assume coke, cokehead. Yeah, you're not coke wrong. Just I a would lot just of say that like lunches, boozy lunches. But I think that from my own experience. Uh, of comparing that to any of the suits that I know, the business mm. world is so laden with drugs and sex, mm. and it's because they have the money and they have no scrutiny, certainly no fucking scrutiny at all. And so it's just a complete nest of hedonism and debauchery. And God. also, let's be honest, <laughs> their jobs aren't yeah. that hard. You know, really, yeah, once you I mean, get to a certain point, yeah, if you're just moving capital around, I mean, I'm sure, look, there's people who do it better than others, but it's hard to fuck up in that situation. It's, it's also harder to exceed, uh, sorry, excel compared to your compatriots, but pretty hard to also fuck up. Um, yeah. Having said that, I've never been in that position, so... Look, roast me in the comments if I'm completely wrong there. I also don't think people who have been in the upper echelons of business would be listening to this podcast. I mean, maybe. <laughs> Hello, if you are. That would be awesome. Um, <laughs> but, 
I think it's, yeah, it's yeah, it, definitely that, diff. Yeah, go on, go on. I was just going to say, um, Wolf of Wall Street was hardly a satire. I think that was just a sort of very accurate portrayal of what, um, well, Wall Street would be like. And I'd imagine um, the business world in Australia wouldn't actually be too different. No, Christ, no. Not from what I know. And that's the thing. It's just people in the business world are truly soulless and it's just par for the course. I remember when my girlfriend was in the business world, she, first off, she actually did become a worse person for a while. And I do just think that that is the result of being in that, like it it is, it is a soul sucking job. You, You can't have a soul and do the soulless things that business people do on a daily basis. But the other thing is that they just constantly numb themselves with booze at the very least. She never took Coke. It was always on offer. It was a bunch of things were on offer. But what you do have to do in that world is drink. That's how you get schmoozy with everyone. That's the thing that the big distinction between the political and business world that I've noticed is that in the political world, you can never let your guard down. It's a much more Machiavellian mm. schemey place. And everyone, no one is anyone's friend, especially in your own party. That's the worst part in your own party is where all the plotting happens because you don't really have power over whether the other ones go out. They might hoard together for the election. And then after that, it's just knives out behind each other's backs. Labor actually to their creditors, stopped that a lot but it doesn't stop those kind of little faction bids behind the scenes so everybody Mm. is constantly expecting and rightfully so to be stabbed in the back that's how that game goes in fact paul keating had a really good quote about it which was everybody in politics goes out in a casket it's just whether or not the pole bearers are crying that's all you're looking for in that yeah do you think because of the total lack of trust in the media today, you'd actually have an opportunity to play a game that Trump kind of did where you, you sort of set up the narrative that the media is against me because I'm doing what's right for the people. So then when scandals come out, well, look, see, I told you guys, they're going to, they're going to try and dig up all this dirt on me because Trump was clearly immune to all of that. Whereas Cuomo, who um, has been brought down by numerous sex scandals now as the New York governor, governor tried to do that i noticed he was he was doing some speeches saying look the establishment is trying to take me down this is a shakedown and it was like bro first of all no one's buying that you are the establishment you can't can't, can't you're Cuomo. your brother's on cnn oh just admit it just admit you fucking you know and then he said i'm italian (laughs) <laughs> That's the best. Oh, Far out, really. He went to Hey, that. I'm Italian. I touch women. What can I say? <laughs> oh, look, did. okay. If he said that from the beginning, <laughs> that would have been his best defense. To start out by just being like, the establishment's against me. Dude, there's no graceful way out of it for you. You know, like you can't make up excuses yeah. when you're Take Cuomo. the L. Huh? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Take, Take the, the L. L. Dude, funnily enough, uh, if Biden was ever up against anyone else, I mean, I'm sure his um, unscrupulous conduct, especially his just eyebrow-raising conduct in sniffing the hair of girls 
would be put under the microscope. But in comparison to Trump, he was a saint. Uh, but there's some very weird footage out there of him quite literally sniffing the hair of uh, young girls, which I guess is creepy, may not necessarily be, um, you know, sinister, but he also just sort of played it off as like, uh, you know, I'm I'm old. That's what we do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. That's what we do. It's... um. It's a bit strange. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, I definitely uh, the few friends I do have in the in the business world. There's there's so much drinking. I don't know how they manage to work as long as they do. They work, you know, especially in in finance and those sorts of industries, ten, eleven, twelve hour days, and then after that, they're uh, boozing it up. So I don't know. You know, they must be extremely sleep deprived. Uh, my dad was in finance and he never, he was not a drinker. Because actually his dad, uh, you know, his, his alcohol contributed to his debt. And so I think that's, uh, well, I think he also just didn't like the taste. But um, you, know, you can't climb the um, corporate ladder in Australia. If, you, if, if, you, if someone offers you a drink and you say, in a semi-Indian accent, I don't like the taste. <laughs> so, yeah, true. You're not going to get anywhere. Not in the '90s, maybe now. No, Christ, but, no. Um, not in, the, <laughs> not in the '90s. <laughs> Damn, it's a good point. Look, dude, mm. I, I think you're definitely right. I think the other thing, though, is your corporate mates. It's not that they're not doing their job of what, what what is expected of them. It's just that, like, I think you can do that kind of work drunk or, like, hungover. Oh, no, no, no. I think you can. They'd, mm. Yeah, yeah, they'd be hungover, but it's not like they're not doing the job. They're just doing the job. And then afterwards, still going to the pub on a weeknight and um, still getting to work and, and doing what they have to do. It's pretty impressive, to be honest. Oh, yeah, look, it's... Kind of the, ex it's a perverse version of, you know how Marines just have this impeccable culture that's drilled into them by being in a cohort together. It's the other way around. It's impressive mm. how much they get loaded and still do the job. Um, but it is having said that, I think that the job isn't as, our job, for instance, I don't think that you can do hungover. Because our job is thinking of new ideas. Their job is fill out this piece of paper. Now fill out this piece of paper. Now fill out this piece of paper. It's it's like a lot of it is just data entry and like reshuffling and stuff. There's no, there's no, for instance, like a lot of the time mm. when people say, uh, I listen to your podcast while working. There is no way that you could do that in our job. You can't no. have other voices talking to you while you're trying to think of, something else in a voice no i mean editing i'll sometimes listen to music and um when i'm not having to edit sound uh i'll sometimes listen to music or or podcasts but uh yeah but that's not yeah, the writing while process I'm, uh, while i'm writing i can't no i can't i can't do that i know a few comedians look um comedy and art is is also known for uh well it's not definitely known for drug taking and oh, that's yeah. the stereotype isn't it the the artist uh, who's just a 
well, that's where it comes from, living the rock star life because rock stars in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and I'm sure still to this day, would be multimillionaires touring across the globe and just <laughs> banging groupies, um, doing all sorts of drugs, drinking, and then they're still alive to this day. I think one of the Rolling Stones just passed away recently, but um, yeah, but Jagger's of old still kicking. Age. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's interesting. You know, the fact that they can uh, consume what I can only imagine would be copious amounts of um, substances that are pretty risky for an extended period of time, and still be kicking in their sixties, seventies, and eighties. Uh, that's I don't know a, how that's they a testament that. to their lifestyle. That was that's impressive. What, just <laughs> banging groupies across the world. That actually just like that um, counteracts, that counterbalances the um, loss of life expectancy from the consumption of alcohol and drugs. Maybe, maybe, because <laughs> your body just wants to hang in for one more bust. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. I know a few. Um, comedians in you know in in, in our world who've, who've lived as much of that rock star lifestyle as i guess they can on their income and look it's it's such a cliche but it's not uh as appealing as it seems you know i think every every guy has a has that fantasy of being the whether they're famous or just rich and um sleeping with whoever they want but um, no, a lot of those guys I know are, are pretty unstable and uh, don't have a lot of long-term happiness. They've got, as, look, as conservative and as cliche as this sounds, they have a lot of short-term highs and they've got a lot of great stories. But um, are, they, uh, are, they, are they truly happy? I would say no. Mm. <laughs> Look, you know what I've noticed though? I think that there's all different types of self-serving behavior that pull into different categories. So people that are in music are usually really self-absorbed. Whereas I think that people in comedy, when they have a personality defect, they're usually narcissistic. When you're in politics or business, you seem to be sociopathic. Um, <laughs> just cunts uh, all around cunts all around but different shades but those those yeah. would be the big glamour positions wouldn't it politics, business law is kind of an extension of business it's the same kind of person it's sociopaths um, but yeah it, God. I suppose there's like different variation in the entertainment world between those two. I really do think that every time you meet, okay, this is a really good example without getting too much into COVID because I know that that's always going to be a hornet's nest, but people who are in music will advocate for the jab. But why are they advocating for the jab? It isn't because of, oh, you have to get vaccinated mm. so nobody else gets it. It's you have to get vaccinated so I can go on tour again. Fuck. Support local music. Like their, their world is that insular that the things that always concern musicians 
uh, heady bullshit subjects that are, you know, pseudo-political, like change the date or something like that. That's just like, they'll have that. That's always part of the image. But the other thing is, you know, support live music. But what's supporting live music? I want to jam in Byron Bay. That attracts I mean, that sort I, of person. I, I wouldn't, wouldn't you say it's if the entire industry has virtually shut down, which it has, at least in terms of live music, that's pretty understandable and not necessarily a, a sort of selfish sentiment. I, I, I could see what you're saying in that they're advocating for a what has now become a political position, getting the jab, uh, but not necessarily taking into account the, the concerns for the broader community and they're just um, concerned about their industry. But I'm sure if, for whatever adventitious reason, comedy had to just halt, uh, we would also be advocating for various positions that would uh, help bring that back. Wouldn't you agree? But it did. Don't you think the comedians, because they think about the world a lot more, I haven't seen it. I'm not constantly on social media, so I don't know for a fact. But like from what I've seen, comedians basically seem to be making jokes about it, obviously. That's their go-to. I don't think that <laughs> yeah. it's the same... It's it's not coming from the same place as musicians. I understand that everybody's always just going to be sitting there and advocating for their industry because that's their world. But I, I always just think that with 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 a lot of musicians of God, you could be such an important voice, and yet you're such a waste. That's always the thing when I ever see any of their positions on anything mm. societally. I, I find it like truly distasteful. <laughs> okay. I, I, yeah, I, I don't really know much about their broader politics, but if anything, the last five years has shown that a lot of celebrities have very shallow political opinions uh, and they definitely overestimate their influence. Uh, I think it's at a point in America where a large swath of the population will actually be openly hostile to celebrities that uh, advocate for a certain political position um, or at least, you know, espouse a certain sentiment that is clearly coming from an, a, a, a sort of unaware elitist mindset. Uh, a perfect example of that was that Imagine video, that American celebrities, they uh, made Wasn't a video incredibly of the... Yeah, that was extremely cringeworthy. And then there was the um, I take responsibility in, in response to the Black Lives Matter yeah. um, protests and uh, the guy from Breaking Bad just was definitely overacting about taking responsibility. Well, doesn't <laughs> people that guy are pretty overact. pissed off of being... Yeah, people are kind of sick of being lectured to by... Um, what they perceive to be the, the sort of shallow political sentiments of comedians, uh, so celebrities that have lived extremely privileged, privileged lives for at least uh, a pretty significant portion of their lives. Now, a lot of them came from, well, I don't know about poverty, but didn't come from elite money. But um, especially American celebrities. You know, there's a lot of Australian celebrities that are very well known. That would be on like, what, $200,000, $300,000 a year. 
fuck. I mean, we're not rich by any stretch of the imagination. I'm fuck. I'm not at all. I catch people are still surprised when they see me on the train. I'm like, how fucking rich do you think? I, or like the, when they see I drive like a 2007 car, and they're like, oh my god, what? Why do you drive that car? <laughs> yeah, that's so weird. I've Comedy seen you on a screen. Aren't you a billionaire? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, American celebrities, very. it was obviously they've got a much larger audience base to appeal to. Um, so even if you're, a, I guess, a C-list celebrity in America, you're making bank. I know, I know there's actually, there's an Australian girl that started out in comedy here who's now doing a few uh, Netflix shows and she gets something like 40 grand an episode. And she's like low tier Hollywood celebrity. But that's the level of money that they're still working wow. with. It's it's obscene. It's a uh, it's a different world, and you, you can understand that they live in a you know a hedonistic bubble. I actually want to ask because you're studying the the late, latter stages of the Roman Empire, and that's well known for its uh, hedonism. What sort of hedonic acts were they uh, participating in? I know I. You know they love their orgies and their what they had their vomitoriums, which you got with me. That's <laughs> that's just like showing off your excess, isn't it? Oh, We're gonna eat it? a bank. But you know what? Just just as a throw quick side note, and eat again. <laughs> I know it's fucked. Yeah, they did do that, but the vomitorium. I can't remember what room it was, but it's a misnomer. Everyone thinks that that's the room that they vomited in, but they didn't. That was another room, and I can't remember oh, what where, okay. where they vomited, but they vomited somewhere else. But they. That was kind of a peak stage thing. I actually think it's a bit of a misnomer now looking at, not misnomer, just like misconception now looking at the Roman Empire at its latest stages and how dire it was. It was not because of its hedonism. It's actually at the peak that it was extremely hedonistic. Uh, Mm. Towards the end... before. Well, actually, the Republic. Look, it depended Sorry, where you were. Before the, yeah, okay. Before the collapse, but look, it did depend where you were. I would imagine if you were in Ravenna, which was the capital towards the end of the Roman Empire, you probably would have had a really cushy. In fact, now that I think about it, no, you still would have had that because there was Roman emperors that, you know, inherited the throne, shouldn't have been there. The Senate was still fighting amongst themselves, despite the fact that there was complete carnage outside of the city. Um, hmm. But the, the the classic things of the hedonism of the Roman Empire, which I think is a really interesting fact. I might have said it here before, but I think that this one is so telling. Sports stars became billionaires. Chefs became celebrities. There was a... When you say sports stars, are you talking about gladiators? Gladiators were always celebrities, but they were slaves. So I don't even know if they... No, they would have made money. They still would have made money. Um, But no, it was chariot uh, chariot races. Chariot races made huge money. There, There was actually like a bit of a comparison here as in like the richest senators during the late Republic would have been much richer than Bill Gates and Bezos. Much, much, much richer. Really? Um, comparatively. So what, what what timeline is this? Are we talking like two, three, four hundred CE? 
because I've been reading very um, limited amount and uh, it was sort of describing how a lot of barbarian tribes were continually sacking Rome around this period. Mm. And if they were doing that, how did they still maintain, you know, a semblance of uniform culture and control if they were constantly being sacked by barbarian tribes? It depended. Like by then, the Roman Empire divided into two parts, the East Roman Empire and the West Roman Empire. The East Roman Empire continued on for another thousand years in one form or another. But the West Roman Empire collapsed in 476. And that last 70-year period, I think in 410, Rome was sacked. So barbarians got to the gates of Rome, stayed there until they starved the population out, and then they sacked it for three days and fucked off. And then it kind of just lingered on for another... 70 years after that and there was kind of the show and parade of everything just being normal despite the fact that when you went out to the provinces of spain and france constant raiding and sacking then the barbarians moved down to africa and then they started grabbing roman fleets and they started enacting widespread early stage viking piracy i suppose um and were these barbarians were they germanic tribes yeah. What was the origin of, yeah, okay. Well, and then what was happening did, there is... At what yeah, point, yeah. I was just going to, uh, the next question was just like, at what point then did you see the rise of the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church? Uh, because they obviously played a huge role as you moved into the Dark Ages and then eventually the Middle Ages. So mm. what sort of happened after the, that, you know, that, complete decline of the Western Roman Empire and then the rise of the Holy Roman. Is it still the Holy Roman Empire? I mean, the Holy, you know, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church definitely had a big say throughout Europe. Um, I guess what were the events that sort of led into that? Led into the uh, the, 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 the Holy Roman Empire or the, or, or, uh, or the Pope? Well, a bit of both. bit of both. Well, I've probably jumped around a few centuries here. Well, the, yeah, that's the whole thing. Is that, uh, Emperor Constantine made the entire Roman Empire in the 3rd century, I think, uh, Catholic, well, Christian. And then from there, that spread and was such a powerful force that uh, Germanic and Hunnish tribes were devout Catholics, as in there are instances. One of the amazing instances of the declining time of the Roman Empire was that uh, Attila the Hun surrounded the Rome, the, the, the capital of Rome. It was completely unguarded. There was no army there to stop them. And the Pope rode out, went into Attila's tent. They talked for like three hours he rode back into the city and then Attila said, yeah, all right, we're leaving. And then this horde, one of the scariest horde, they, like the Germans were scared of the Huns. They, they were a, a really vicious tribe. They left, didn't sack, just went. And I think that the same thing happened. Uh, wow. there's, there's instances in the later Roman Empire where bishops around Gaul, uh, Ostrogoths and Visigoths, they'd be raiding cities, 
And a lot of it was brutal. What we have, the very, very limited scope of information that we have from that point, because it was the beginning of the Dark Ages. Everything was ransacked. Uh, Bureaucracy was breaking down. There's this great story of the last fortification that the Rome, Imperial Rome, as in Ravenna, I suppose, was paying for that was on the border, the, uh, the, the, the Rhine, which is the separation between Germany and, and France. And they gave money. Uh, they, used to, they used to get people to go to Ravenna, pick up the money for the soldiers, and then give it to the garrison. And then one day, the two soldiers that they sent, they didn't come back for a week and then another soldier was gathering water from the river and he saw the two bodies float down the river. And that was the last external fortification of the Roman Empire. And then after that, everyone just had to fend for themselves in that area. And so there was all these versions, wow. stories of bishops, for instance. Oh, not bishops. What are they called? No, I think it is bishops. Whatever. In, in the Roman Empire, they would... Um, be talking to these Ostrogoths and Visigoths and they'd say, okay, you can ransack this city and take everything for what it's worth. That's fine. But can you not rape the women and enslave the men? And in some instances, they were so powerful and the Visigoths and Ostrogoths believed in the Christian God so much that these guys with every upper hand you could imagine would say, yeah, okay, that's fine. And then they'd move on to the next city. So there was true power in the Incredible. church after the Roman Empire collapsed, West Roman Empire collapsed. Massive, massive power. That is, as, there's this great sentence where it said that the world moved away from a realm of materialism to a temporal realm. Like the Dark Ages was an extremely internal spiritual time for Europe as in there was unimaginable horror in the dark ages and society went from being a late stage iron age economy to an early bronze age economy. So pretty much almost the stone age. It made that much of a jump within a generation and a really, really telling example of that is the fact that we have pottery that the average British peasant would have that was from Africa, because this is incredible, Neil. This is how sophisticated that society was. They had huge barges, massive industrial barges of pottery moving from North Africa to Britain. You did not see that until like the late industrial revolution. There was not a city that had a million people in it until late industrial London. From 400 AD to 1800, like 1850, nothing close to an economy that sophisticated, not even close. And so they would have, even the poorest peasant would have, it's amazing. It's, it's such a sophisticated society. It was incredible. Um, They, they would have, the average peasant would have a brick home that still stands today, mind you. Though There's nothing wrong with those houses. They don't have electricity. Some of them still have running water. Like peasant houses would have 
some form of aqueduct nearby, but um, they would have that. Uh, they would have pottery that was of high quality, as in made in to an industrial scale and made to a way that was just uniform. So you could tell that all of the plates, you, but just by looking at them, you can tell Roman, just by a shard, Roman, 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 Roman. Then that all broke down. And so all of a sudden you had pottery that was made within from, I don't know where Africa is, but it was from North Africa to Britain. And then in the span of a decade, uh, in span of a generation, it went to pottery that was at best in Britain, maybe a few kilometers down the road. And you can tell, oh, Dark Ages pottery because it's shit. Uh, it looks like a child made it. It's like, it's it's so bad because yeah. they didn't have yeah. the massive kilns and the sophisticated technology to make thousands of plates at once and sell them there. Then, because this is the new thing, like the, you know, it's just a much nerdier version of this, but there is that woke type that uh, historians and all historians are always just being like, mm, it's bad colonialism, Roman Empire was colonialism, all that kind of shit. Keeping in mind that after the Roman Empire collapsed, the population of Europe halved. So fuck off. Like it was an, an incredible feat, the, the Pax Romana, AKA Roman peace. But like in uh, that kind of level of pottery that was that sophisticated, it's amazing because I've just read once them making the counter argument of, yeah, that pottery still existed in Rome 200 years after. So it wasn't actually that big of a difference when Rome collapsed anyway. But then I read into it further, that plate that they were talking about was most likely the Pope's in Rome. So the most powerful man on earth had African plates uh, just 100 years after the Roman Empire collapsed. No one had anything else like that. Houses, we don't even know what houses from the Dark Ages looked like. We know that they were made out of timber and hutch, but they were of so poor quality. And because the timber and hutch, like they don't exist anymore. They had like a 30-year life cycle, whereas some of these Roman houses, still thousands of years, nothing wrong with them. Um, there was that much of, mm. a of a collapse. But in that world, because it was just so dire, there was nothing for the average person to keep them going, especially because a lot of these people would have remembered times under the Roman empire. They would have remembered running water and they would have remembered, you know, a police force. And then all of a sudden it was just constant raiding, starvation, uh, constant malnourishment. Were these, and in, yeah. So just real quick, these barbarian tribes, your Visigoths and Ostrogoths, where, did they originate from and did they come from any sort of city state or were they quite literally just a band of a thousand to 10,000 marauders, you know, did Look, they have their own language and culture or what do we know much about these, these sorts of small European tribes post Roman em empire, you know, leading up to the dark ages? Yeah, they were Ostrogoths, Visigoths. The Goths were Germans. What happened in the collapse of the Roman Empire was in the 3rd century AD, this is something that I've just been like, because I just used to always think, oh, it's decadence. That's what led to it. But there's always, this is another interesting point about the collapse of the Roman Empire. I think I talked to you about this off air once, Neil, which is that you go throughout history, whatever are the societal problems that people are grappling with 
there'll always be people saying that's what caused the Roman Empire. So say it's just like loose morals. Loose morals is what caused the collapse of the Roman Empire. Not integrating races well enough. That's what created the collapse of the Roman Empire. Like it, it just doesn't matter ah, what it is. Okay. Different period. They'll be saying that's what the pro- the reality of the situation was. There's a couple of things that were happening. It was just in the East Roman Empire, um, they just had a much better administration. The emperor, which had always been a successful form of governance, which was that he was sort of a military dictator. Uh, It it wasn't a monarchy. There was examples of it being passed from son to son, but very rarely. And usually they were fairly competent and could hold that position. But after a while, the military was always the one that decided who was the next Roman emperor, because that was pretty much they had an incredible efficient system of government for the time, but it's nothing like what you would imagine today. There was very few things that the government did apart from provide protection or an army. Right. Mm. And so in the East Roman empire, it kept with that, like they still kind of remained military. Another word for the emperor would have been like a military dictatorship in the West. It kind of just became more decadent. You can argue and, uh, people that shouldn't have been on the throne that were just there because they were the son of a senator or something, they started taking over. But, mm. uh, yeah, like, as a result of that, really the Roman Empire should have collapsed in the 3rd century AD. I think they had, I can't remember how many, but it was something like 50 emperors in the span of, you know, 50 years. It was just constant civil war and backstabbing. Mm. and it, it, The 3rd century crisis, that's what it's called. But that didn't collapse then. It collapsed in the 5th century because those Goths, after battling with the Romans for hundreds and hundreds of years, they figured out the military techniques of the Romans to a degree. And they also just constant like negotiation with the Roman army where they'd be saying, who's your leader? Who do we talk to about prisoners of war? And then they'd start figuring out, oh, okay, if we keep some of these prisoners alive, we can use them as bargaining chips later. You know, they all those kind of things of just fighting with them for so long, they got to the point where they were close enough that they could invade. Um, but like, Interesting. yes, they had cities. Yes, they had some kind of, you know, not anywhere close to sophisticated as the Romans, not even close, but they had that, but you know, it's somewhere in the middle of like being a sophisticated culture and being a band of barbarians. It's somewhere in between those two things. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's very remarkable seeing that the, you know, the Roman, the Western Roman empire collapsed in the fifth century. And then it wasn't historically speaking, it wasn't that long after until the, the, the Pope and the Vatican and, and, and the Catholic church had so much influence all across Europe once again. Well, I don't think that it ever died. I think that the seal of the Pope still mattered. And, uh, if you wanted to be King of Italy, which is what it turned into, uh, you would still need the blessing of the Pope. There would, it turned into two separate entities. There was the, I can't remember what the name of the Orthodox Pope is, but the Orthodox Pope in the East, which was like a Greek version of Mm. uh, Christianity. And then you would have the Catholic Pope in the West, but the Catholic Pope would always be recognizing whoever was the emperor in uh, Byzantium. 
as the Roman emperor until until it came to the Holy Roman Empire. And that's why that became the Holy Roman Empire, because the Pope just said after, you know, a bunch of political maraudering and fashioning, he said, no, 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 no. King Charlemagne, he's the Holy Roman Emperor now. We're not recognizing the East Roman Emperor anymore. It was that they were weak at the time and this guy was really strong and he was giving the Pope its own. That's why the Vatican exists today, actually, is because it was the starting point uh, I think a few generations before Charlemagne, and he said, uh, you know, the Vatican is its own state. And he gave it more land than it has now, but he was just saying that don't touch this. This is, it, the Pope has his own principate, his own area of governance. So like the amount mm. of power back in the day when people were so superstitious and no one could read, a really good example is in, under the Roman Empire, the average library would have 500,000 books. In the Dark Ages, the average library would have five to 600 books. And so, like, it just shows you how uneducated the average person was. And most of those books would have been about God. They wouldn't have been... Under the Roman Empire, a lot of them would have been about engineering, mathematics, botany, biology, mm, all of that. Yeah. It's all gone. It's all gone. All they had was just God. And it was actually... There was a societies that were popping up in modern day Iraq that actually held a lot of the literature and scientific ideas of the ancient Greeks and, and Romans. And if they hadn't done that, it may have actually been lost to history. Yeah. That, that is yeah. Islamic golden age. Um, I'm reading about one. I've forgotten his name, but there was a sort of emperor or, or a king somewhere in Iraq through the dark ages who um they had a very prosperous society a very intelligent society while europe was uh (laughs) quite superstitious yet still had you know they had power i mean the catholic church their power and their wealth was was immense i mean coming full circle i i've heard stories about how despite the the Catholic Church being a bastion of morality inside the walls of the Vatican, there's all sorts of hedonism that takes place. And and now we do know, you know, there are all sorts of um, unscrupulous acts that take place inside of Catholic churches. Well, because it's another position um... of power. Mm. That's the whole point. It always attracts something about power. It is a corrupting force. Do you think it's the power that? Do you think? Do you think those powerful positions and 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 fields where uh, you can wield that level of power attracts that sort of hedonistic person, or do you think people get into these industries and and positions of power and they become corrupt? Do you you think, say, you know, these priests that have been abusing um, their disciples? Do you think, well, I mean, there's always talk of how they were abused as children. So I guess the cycle sort of perpetuates itself. But which one do you think it is, nature or nurture? And and, and not just in terms of the Catholic Church. Broadly speaking, uh, when we think about positions of power and how there always seems to be a disproportionate amount of um, not just hedonism, but you, you could argue, you know, oppressive hedonism that, 
occurs. It also could just be because uh, we put a microscope onto these people, and if you just, I don't know, if you if you dived into the um, the inner sanctum of any industry, there could be that sort of conduct occurring. But um, do you think that it's the power that is corrupting? Or do you think uh, corrupt people are attracted to powerful positions? No, I think it's corrupt people are attracted to powerful positions. That's my experience with these people. It's that you put, well, actually, you know what? To go back to the Roman Empire, one of the people that's always held up as the gold standard. He, you know what? He is sort of, Marcus Aurelius is sort of like PewDiePie online. It's, he's, he's sort of a, he's, he's a golden boy. You can't really criticize the man. Even today, it's pretty insane that he has kept that position. But he was always talking about the fact that uh, he was very grateful that he was given uh, the upbringing that he had. So like his father, I think Antoninus, uh, he was, he was really into philosophy and education and, and bettering yourself and all those kinds of aspects. Whereas the average Roman mm. emperor came from the military. So they were effective at running the military, but they were also ruthless and didn't give a shit about anything except the military. Whereas that guy came up reading about laws, reading about, you know, morality, all that kind of stuff. And so when he went into the position of power, you look at the reforms that that man was trying to implement. It's just a damn shame that he had to spend most of his life fighting the Germans on the border. But if he didn't, and he did get a lot of stuff done in terms of like legal reform, he was obsessed with that and laser focused. But the thing is, before he was in that position, he had prepared himself for the reins of power. That is, I think that that's just really what happens with power. It's the same as money, man. Like, I really do think that. I think that if you're a cunt, if you have a billion dollars, you are going to be a cunt to the power of a billion don't you yeah, reckon? You have like, greater capacity to be there. Yeah, you yeah. Have everyone's capacity. flawed, but mm, when you when you are in a position of power or wealth, you your flaws are accentuated, or they they're so able much. to manifest in a in a much uh, more obvious way. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's it. Like, I I really don't think that it's <sighs> power is Does neutral. Need... What what's power? Power is the ability to make decisions. That's power. So everyone has power. Like a cop has power. We have power. Brickies have power. They're, they're exercising decision-making. Mm. It's quite neutral. It's the same as money. Money is an extremely neutral thing. Where does it go? For what ends? I, I really do think that. That like people shouldn't be thinking about... Uh, like, I actually truly disagree with the sentiment that absolute power uh, corrupts absolutely. Like, if you look at Julius Caesar's reign, there was nothing corrupt about that. He did nothing but try and weed it out. Marcus Aurelius's, he had absolute power. Nothing corrupt about his reign. It depends. Yeah, it does depend. Uh, there are definite examples of people 
in positions of high esteem and power who have managed to improve the conditions for the people whom they wield power over, would you say they are the exception to the rule? Would you say, generally speaking, power is a very corrupting influence on homo sapiens? Do you think we need... Go on. So it can very, you know, commensurate checks and balances for any form of power, be it governmental power, economic power, cultural power. Uh, if we have a system that allows for checks and balances and some level of competition, now I'm not just talking about competition in a, in a, in a, you know, in a free market sense, but competition broadly speaking, that's what keeps power in check. Uh, when there isn't just this one source of power. Ironically enough, when there are competing sources of power, that can actually be what keeps them in check. Look, I used to think that, and I know I'm going to get my head torn off in the comments for saying otherwise, but no, I think that usually what happens in checks and balances is you just have a bunch of self-serving people in those positions that just check each other out. Uh, I, I like, and so nothing gets well, done. The ch- I, I, I think that a society that has a bunch of checks and balances in it is a society that is just constantly treading water. Nothing ever gets done. That is the true lesson of the Roman late Roman Republic. It's that, uh, like. Even even if you had people that were of genuine good intention, like, say, the Gracchi brothers, for instance, that really wanted to put some very important, super important reforms into the Roman Empire for 99.99% of the Republic, couldn't do anything. There's just so many checks and balances. I honestly think that what you should be doing, and I know that I'm going to get my head extra bitten off for this. Do you want to be setting up a system like China's, 